0: I see flags, I hear bells, there's a parade in town. I see crowds, I hear yells, there's a parade in town. I hear drums in the air, I see clowns in the square. I see marchers marching, tossing hats at the sky.
1: Geraldine Turner has charted a career spanning four decades and established herself as one of few bona fide leading ladies of the musical theatre. A repertoire of high-octane roles as senior lead companies of Oliver, Anything Goes, Chicago, Sweeney Todd and Into the Woods. But there is one role that has escaped her. And in this episode of Stages, she ponders why that may be. Turner is an artist at ease in any form. She has mastered cabaret, plays, television and film, and recently added playwright and director to her beau. Always frank and armed with great warmth, Gerardine Turner is the ideal guest. So, with a life so full, why hasn't she yet penned an autobiography? Have you ever contemplated writing your autobiography?
2: Is this part of the thing?
1: Yeah,
2: absolutely. Have we started? We've started. Oh. Um. LAUGHTER <laughs> A lot of people have been at me for years about writing an autobiography. I sort of tend to think, who'd be interested? Who'd buy it? Five people. And how would I get a publishing deal anyway? You know, all of those things. I do think about it. But I kind of think, I don't know, there's a part of me that doesn't like looking back. I like looking at the present and the future. Uh, But, you know, I don't like kind of those shows that people do where they just talk about their past all the time and their past successes and all that. I mean, I've done it myself, but I don't enjoy doing that because I feel like, I don't want to feel like everything's in the past. And I feel like writing my autobiography would be the end of my life and so theref- the end of my career. So therefore, I might as well just look back and say, this is what I've done. So in order to write an autobiography, this is a long way of putting it, I realise, for a, for a simple question, but... I would have to come up with some kind of hook. Um, You know, when Richard Werrett and his brother Peter wrote that biography, Their Lives, they did one chapter each, you know, which worked really well. It was kind of... It was a hook for it. I mean, in that way, whether it was, like, basing each chapter on, I don't know, like, one chapter on my life, the next chapter on my career, the next chapter on my life. I don't know. There's some sort of hook.
1: There's um, a great um, autobiography by Frank Langella, the American Yes, actor, and it's about called, famous people he's it's called, worked with. Yes, it's something. called Drop Names. Yeah, that's right. And every chapter is about a famous yeah. person. And then he, he
2: talks about himself with that person. And that period of time yeah, and well what that's, he was doing. Yeah, and it's that's a That's the sort hook. of thing, mm. some sort of hook. Yep. If I could do that, then it wouldn't be to me... Oh. God, I've reached the end of my tether and all I've got left is to write what I've done. You know, because that's the way I'm feeling about it. So I've just got to come up. So if you can come up with, in this next little while while we're speaking. I'll let you know. Use part of your brain to think of a hook.
1: Um, but of course, it would be, a, a well, an essential historical theatrical document. Record. Yeah, for, absolutely. For, and
2: I, yeah, yeah, and I would go on, because you know in Canberra and there's National Archives, I've got nine hours of tapes. Oh, great. Of myself. Yep. Um, and I opted because you can opt to have anyone look at them or nobody look at them till you die and nobody, you know, anyway. So I, I've opted for the, the one in between, which is people have to contact me until I die. People have to contact me to ask if they can look at them so or listen to them. So, yeah, and I, I would do that if I was going to write something about myself because I can't remember some of the stuff I said because a lot of that interview, of the first six hours of it, I think, was a lot of it was when the that that gypsy thing was cancelled so it's a lot of that stuff which I've forgotten yeah. so I'd have to go back in and I mean I'm allowed to listen to myself funnily enough
1: funnily enough <laughs> um, uh, but of course you're sitting down and writing you know from day one it must be a tremendously difficult task you need yeah. people to prod memories and yeah, people that yeah. you can reference and, yeah, yeah, and all, all that of sort of thing yeah yeah. Um, yeah but of course you do a lot of that autobiographical stuff in your cabaret shows I almost do. recently The Turn Turn
2: yeah I do, yeah.
1: So that's a way of encapsulating your story thus yeah, far. Yeah,
2: yeah, that's right. And and also uh, this year, 2018, there's a retrospective of my career coming out in on recordings um, by Desiree Records, which is our record company. My husband Brian and myself run, although Brian runs it really. And he's had this series going for a few years now called Great Australian Voices and it's opera singers. And it's opera singers of note, but the public don't necessarily know them. And they haven't been recorded, you know, for posterity. So it's it's Brian's sort of thing to have these records out there uh, for students of the future, for people interested in in our musical heritage. Um, and there, so a lot of a lot of them are it, it, people who have illegally recorded things from the audience of live performances. And so this retrospective of my career is not my recordings that, I mean, have recordings, it's stuff like that. It's things that people have recorded illegally and sent to Brian over the years. Or some things are, like there's a lot of my first Sondheim album included. It's a three-disc set, it will be. So this will be in Great Australian Voices musical theatre. Uh, so, yeah, that's interesting. So in that, I've written, oh, or I am at the moment in process of writing the notes for it because we bring it out, we bring these records out like books so there's a whole lot of information and uh, I'm writing a lot of sort of stories about those shows and things like that in within that booklet so yeah again that's autobiographical in a way isn't it you Yeah.
1: Know? is there a release date on that or it's some no. sometime during the year no it's just a work in progress and... no it's
2: the first half of the year it's at the moment at the person who tries to make the sound better than it is so and so we've got all the things chosen and I've I've done the first draft of my notes and Brian's got to write his notes and then we've got it. just got to get the design concept and the artwork done and then send to the manufacturer. So I imagine, I don't know, March...
1: I well do. that's something that we can look forward to while we're waiting for your autobiography <laughs> to to okay. occur which and you've you've still got God, plenty of time left to write that oh
2: let's hope
1: let's hope um now to be a obviously to be a, a great performer as you are there needs to be a degree of sensitivity and vulnerability mm. which uh you have of course in in spade loads mm. um cabaret is a is a genre a form that you you constantly um have appeared in, and it would seem to me that that is the most vulnerable, the most sensitive of all the art forms, do you think? Because you've got to be yourself.
2: I guess, yes, you have to be yourself. No, not for me. It's something I must do, and I must do when I'm playing a role too. It's about authenticity, which I'm always banging on about, and if I take a masterclass, I'm always banging on about authenticity to students. Um, They stare at you wide-eyed as if they don't understand what you're talking about half the time, but... Because I I realise it's difficult when you're young to go deep and you know be who you are.
1: Well, you haven't got a big palette to draw upon, have you? Of life experience. That's it.
2: So it's much harder, I think, when you're younger. And that's why I don't I don't particularly like young people doing cabaret for that reason. I mean, because I think that with cabaret you walk onto the the stage or the platform or whatever it is, and you must be you absolutely, and you must connect with each member of the audience. I mean, these are all things you should be doing when you're doing a play as well, or, you know, on film or whatever. But certainly in cabaret, it doesn't work at all unless you're this raw person who is having a night with this audience, this particular audience. And and it should be, even though there's a script, it should be as if it's not scripted. It should be... Spontaneous. Spontaneous in the moment. Which, again, is all things you should be when you're acting anyway. But creating that
1: illusion of it's happening for the first time. That's yeah. it.
2: And that never, you've never done it that way before, which, of course, you have every night. But there's got to be that in-the-moment quality. And I sort of, a lot of the time, go off script. And if it's a great audience, I'll tell more stories and, you know. So that that's... I, I find I'm able to just talk and now and again be funny. <laughs> so... Um, Yes, and when you talk about vulnerability, that's very interesting because I think the best performers in the world, whether they're dancers or opera singers or, you know, actors, I think they all have vulnerability. I I don't like seeing a performer who is wearing their confidence in front of them. You have to have confidence. You have to have a certain amount of confidence to walk out on the stage and say, I'm a performer and I'm going to sing for you or whatever. Of course, you have to have some sort of faith in yourself to do that. Um, My faith wavers. You know, now and again, I'm overcome by fear. Always have been. Um, I fight it all the time, that fear. I don't know what I'm afraid of actually because they're all there to like you aren't they they're not there to hate you so that
1: that stage fright or, or is it it's just it is. a healthy fear just before you're about to go on
2: well that's what I'm saying sometimes it's not a healthy fear sometimes it's ticked over into they all hate me and I'm terrible and I can't sing and you know you have these conversations with yourself whilst you're singing it's ridiculous
1: That's extraordinary to to have seen someone like you who is such a a powerhouse on stage and some of those enormous roles that you've done.
2: What you see is not what you get, is it? Mm. I mean, people think it is. People also think of me as someone who is, um, yeah, very confident, very forthright, very uh, almost formidable. And I can see how people would think that because I am opinionated. But don't mix that up with confidence. (laughs) You know, I've never been really confident, which is weird, isn't it? yeah yeah, but anyway, look, maybe that's that mix of i mean i I wouldn't want to put myself in the same sentence as Judy garland, but you you think of someone like her, and it's a similar thing, isn't it in it there's a great deal of confidence, but there's also this kind of when you're watching her, you hope she gets through it, you know you're wishing that she, you can be there one of those nights where she's wonderful. But sometimes you're there on a night when she's not wonderful. Mm. And that's just, you know, because she's not a robot. And because when she's wonderful, she's absolutely brilliant and no one can touch her, you know. Mm. So I'm not suggesting I'm like that, but it, it's the same sort of thing I'm talking about. I mean, Edith Biaf had that too, you know, that sort of... So all these great divas of the past, I think, had that same sort of dichotomy I guess between the confident person and the person who's really not confident at all and the vulnerability shines through and that's what we love about them and uh yeah and yeah so I don't know how to end that sentence well
1: Hmm. psychologically it's um sort of a demanding tango for a performer especially when you're in a business where you are constantly judged whether it be by an audition panel an audience reviewers yeah do you absolutely. read reviews do you take notice oh, yeah, I do of reviews? Read reviews
2: i shouldn't some people don't but i don't believe that they don't do you no, i they... think everybody
1: <laughs> likes to know I think what, they say they don't but i think, think secretly
2: you. they're sitting up in bed reading it yeah and i've had some terrible reviews in my life and i've had some great reviews as well thankfully happily and mostly great reviews if i look at all the reviews over my career so far most of them have been great compared to the few dreadful ones but the dreadful ones have been dreadful and that really does affect me some people it doesn't some people just go ah oh, it's cares? one person's opinion yeah one person's opinion tomorrow's yeah. fish and chips which is of course what you know logically but emotionally i think when you get a bad review you go out that night onto the stage and you know if you don't get the first laugh you think oh, they've all read it they all believe it yeah, yeah. you know you're having this conversation as you're acting which is shocking um but but I the, guess the night after that, you're fine. It's just that first night. Yeah.
1: I guess it's the perfectionist in, in the performer because yeah. they want to please absolutely everyone. Oh, yeah. and,
2: and you can't. And you can't, unfortunately.
1: No. Um,
2: you can't be all things to all people. I, I learned that a long time ago. I mean, you just got to be who you are. And um, I can't remember who wrote it, but I put it in a cabaret show once at the end of the show that, you know, if, you, if you're if you an apple, you can't be an orange. You just got to keep trying being... You just got to go on being an apple and hope people come back to apples. Correct. You know, that I don't know who wrote that, but, you know.
1: <laughs> and not be second banana. That's not uh, never yeah. be second <laughs> banana, let's say. <laughs> uh, where did you grow up? Brisbane. Brisbane. Was that good?
2: No. Um, Brisbane,
1: Brisbane wasn't good or, or childhood wasn't good?
2: <sighs> childhood wasn't good. No. Um, an overbearing mother overbearing sort of stage mother who had wanted to be an actress and her father wouldn't allow her to be so she grew up but she put everything into me she had four sons before me so I had four older brothers working class family my dad was a truck driver we lived in the inner city god that house which is still standing would be worth millions now but it was worth nothing then you know it was sort of the equivalent of Redfern the way it used to be so it was a suburb called Spring Hill which is right close to the city you can walk to the city walk to town um yeah I I, when I say no I mean yeah there were good things I've blocked out my early childhood so I don't think it was very happy but a lot of fights a lot of domestic violence in our family and I've you know grown up with that hiding when there are fights and being at emergency with my mother with her head split open and so all uh, that sort of childhood and, and that's not good no. all the while lying to people now? that that doesn't happen right. Pardon?
1: are you good with confrontation now
2: <laughs> yes I love confrontation right. <laughs> whereas <laughs> whereas some people
1: shy away from it yeah. Shy,
2: or they've grown up with that sort of violence and they kind of go inwards and they hate confrontation no I'm quite bolshy. um when my back's against the wall, particularly, I come out fighting, which I think is a good quality, you know, it's it's a good thing. Um, but yeah, so, but besides all of that domestic violence and all of that stuff going on and my mother being quite mad in a way, and as I say, overbearing, uh, I was never allowed to bring kids home to play or, you know, it was she was just weird. Um, apart from all of that, I was went to ballet school from when I was five, so... Thankfully, I learned how to dance and that was a great thing. Um, and also it was an outlet having other people sort of not... Ballet wasn't like show business in those days, but certainly my mother wanted me to be, be a ballerina, a prima ballerina. That was in her mind. So when I gave up ballet at 16, she was furious with me, but I discovered I could sing better, that I could dance anyway. And my mother slowly came round to that and thought, oh, well, perhaps she can be a famous singer. You know, So, yeah... She switched from ballet to singing and then acting came third, I suppose. I mean, I auditioned for... I mean, I did a few amateur musicals when I was still at school and then I, would, I went to teacher's college because my father wanted me to have something to fall back on because I'd always... From when I was five, I wanted to be on the stage. But I don't know if I wanted to be or my mother wanted me to be and I just was osmosis or something. I don't know. I, I can't remember that who put the thought in whose head. But um, happily, I had talent, and certainly singing talent. And then when the Queensland Theatre Company was starting, um, when I was still at Teachers College, I auditioned. And I got into their first show under Alan Edwards, A Rum Do, which was an Australian musical, which the Queen and Prince Philip and Princess Anne came to at the SCIO Theatre, which doesn't exist anymore. And uh, so I I was in the company for two years. So that's where I got my training as an actor, I guess, going from play to play and, you know, playing a show at night and rehearsing another in the day. and
1: Because other than uh, NIDA, I-, I guess there were no other training institutions in the country. No,
2: WAPA didn't exist. VCA didn't exist. So and you're... now there's a, a course in Queensland, a couple of courses in Queensland. Mm, QUT. Yeah. So um... you had
1: to learn on the job.
2: Yeah, yeah. and I did. And um, I remember th- there's a sort of, I still have it at home. This little cutout of because my mother used to keep all the you know press clippings, and there's a cutout of me looking quite sexy uh, on page three of the Daily Mirror or one of those equivalent newspapers in Queensland. But the article says it ends with you know it just talks about what I want to do with my life. I'm 17, you know, and uh, and my main aim in life was to go south and turn fully professional. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that great? I love
0: it. Here she is, boys. Here she is, world. Here's Rose. So, so your oh, mum you seemed
1: quite a presence as far as sort of your link to from from Brisbane to a career in show business. Mm, mm. Um, and I
2: got married when I was 21 right. to an actor who was working at the Queensland Theatre Company. He was from Perth. And um, I really got married to get away from my mother. Right. You know, from her clutches. Can I do a sidebar? Yes, do.
1: There's There's been a role in your... Um, horizons that has oh. appeared and disappeared. And, oh
2: yes, it's escaped me.
1: Uh, uh, which um, I wouldn't mind talking about now, especially okay. in light of mum, because I, I just want to ask a question there. Mm. Um, mum being a dominating stage, mm. uh, does, mm. do you think that has a link with the, the desire that you've had to play Mama Rose and Gypsy? Is there any... Oh,
2: I don't know. Is maybe. that some
1: sort of ex, maybe. Look, exorcising? Y- maybe or? In, in
2: that I know that woman. Rose, I mean. Yes. I know that woman. She is my mother. I know her. Except she's American, a totally different, yeah, totally different, of course. But,
1: but you know her. Yeah. I know
2: her. I know how to play her, and because I have, I've always had that voice and that sort of presence, and I know I can do that role, that kind of thing. You know, yeah, yeah. That I suppose in that way, yes, it's always. But you know, maybe Geraldine Turner and Gypsy don't belong in the same sentence because there have been four productions now that have been cancelled, and you know.
1: What's happening in the universe when a role and a performer no, get weird, so close so many times? Know, it's
2: weird. And, and once, as you know, you probably know, we rehearsed for a week and didn't get paid at the end of the first week. So there was a design, there was costume designs, you know, music director, everyone was on board, the, you know, all cast, everything, and then it just fell in a heap at the end of the week. So, yeah, it's it's weird, isn't it? It's a weird thing that just, it's just like a role that's, been presented so many times to me and and, and yet it's disappeared I, I don't feel anything anymore about it I mean the first, when, when that was cancelled that time that I was really upset, as you would be and also you know when shows are cancelled it's happened to everyone in show business I'm sure but you know, everything for that year's cast then, you thought you had that job for a year and you don't and then there's nothing else you can do, you know, that. so there is that as well, income and lack of income, all of that stuff Um, But, yeah, I was upset, but no. Now, if if it was presented to me now and it got cancelled again, I'd just laugh, I think. I mean, I just think it's... No, I I feel no animosity, no anything. If I never play the role, I never play the role. You know, I've recorded Rose's Turn and I've recorded Everything's Coming Up, Rose's, you know, whatever.
1: And you touch on it in Turner's Turn, which is great.
2: I do, and, yeah... And there are other roles I can still do. So, hmm. yeah, it's fine. I've let it go. Good.
1: So I just want to ask you about uh, Betty Pounder. Right. Now, Betty Pounder, of course, was the uh, creative who put a lot of shows into Australia from J.C. Williamson. J.C. Williamson. Yeah. yeah,
2: that's right. And and what Pounder used to do was she'd go to New York and she'd see the show for a few, I don't know, a few times, write down everything in code and come back. And she'd she'd... she'd re-choreograph everything the same as she she saw on Broadway, you know. So they didn't ever have to bring out an Mm. assistant choreographer or anything because Pounder was it, you know. So it was still, you know, of course, the the original Broadway choreographer's name was on the the show. Yes. But Pounder did it all. So, yeah, she had a real talent at that and a talent at sort of seeking out people, I guess. And I'm very happy that I know that people like Tony LeMond, Nancy Hayes, Joe Perryman... Of course, Sheila Hancock, um, Bradley. Bradley, sorry, Sheila Bradley. As soon as I said that, I thought, no, not Sheila Hancock, Sheila Bradley, uh, all grew up with, in that J.C. Williamson's era, Gloria Dawn, of course. You know, all of those women and had great careers from J.C. Williamson's, um, uh, Tony Lamont being in the first all star cast Pajama Game, you know, because before then they cast. Americans in those roles, and Nancy getting that lead in Sweet Charity, which was a big deal back in those days. Jill Perryman getting Funny Girl, you know. Usually before that, they would have brought out a star from America. So they all had those opportunities, and I came in at the tail end, I guess, of J C Williamson's. I mean, I did two shows. I did No, 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 Net, and uh, when I was twenty-one, and played Betty from Boston, and uh, that's when J C Williamson's was um, Edgeley Williamson. That, you know there was a there was a uh, michael Edgley bought into the company or whatever they oh, had a sort of
1: right okay yeah that yep. was then but jcws too were just a sidebar they were they were the firm they were the big commercial producers in australia
2: absolutely yeah. right and you went everywhere by train you didn't you know it was you went everywhere by train and you had to dress up and everything it was fun <laughs> um you'd arrive in a you know in a city and they the press would be there a bit like those sort of photograph those things in those scenes in Funny, Funny Girl. Girl yeah yes, in the movie a, yep, yeah yep. yeah that sort of thing it was a bit like that um yeah so I did No 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 Net and which of course starred Sid Charisse and then later Evonda Carlo. so I've worked with both those women which was fantastic and Jill Perryman was in that show of course and I understudied Jill in No 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 Net so that's the only one and only time I've ever understudied anyone in my life and um I never went on she's never sick I did do a dress rehearsal in Sydney. She had a cold and they were worried about it and gave her a day off, and I did a dress rehearsal. But, um, and I think I, you know, I was far too young to play the role, but I think I, you know, made great shakes of it. And I think from that I got offered um,
0: uh, uh,
2: Petra in a little night music.
0: I shall marry the Miller's son. Pin. My hat on, a nice piece of property Friday nights for a bit of fun We'll go dancing
2: That was, of course, I think, a watershed moment for me in my career because although people had noticed me as Betty from Boston, one of the three girls in No 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 Net, when I played Petra, it was like a standout, terrific part and I got to sing The Miller's Son every night.
1: The 11 o'clock number.
2: Yeah, well, is I guess it, the 11 yeah. o'clock number is arguably sending the Clowns. Oh, of course. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, I didn't sing that. But, um, yeah, yeah, but a big, fabulous number in Act Two. And, you know, greatly placed in the show and uh, that's where I think people went, because people still say to me to this day they saw that show and went, who is that girl you know, because I was this girl with the big voice and you know all of that and we didn't have radio mics in those days, you know right. so just a few hidden mics or shotguns along the front of the stage and you had to sing out Louise so of course I could sing out, so yeah I mean when you think about it now in musical theatre you know, there was no there was no room for nuance or, well, a little bit of nuance, but not much. No room for intimacy, you know, no intimate moments because you had to sing over the orchestra.
1: Mm. So, so Pounder put uh, night music in? Oh, yeah. oh, yeah, oh,
2: yeah. And that was the original Hal Prince production. That product, it opened Her Majesty's Theatre, the New Her Majesty's, in 1973, November 1973 in Sydney. Of course, Her Majesty's is not there anymore because mm. we pulled down theatres all over the place in, in Sydney. Sydney yeah. um,
1: was she a tough task, taskmaster?
2: Yes, although friendly as well. And, you know, a very nice woman. She had this fabulous flat, she and her husband, on um, Alexander Avenue in South Yarra, I guess. And uh, it was a kind of like a 1920s, I guess, or 30s, rounded with this big rounded kind of terrace. And she had a secret room. Like, she'd open this door and you'd go down this spiral staircase into a studio. It was fantastic god they'd be worth gazillions now did she ever do
1: anything of herself originally or was she always just um, i think she was a show
2: girl yeah and then became maybe she got too old to be a dancer and got a job
1: with the firm and didn't direct her own stuff though No, no 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 it
2: was nothing like that ever and and i saw you know i remember i remember being at a party during night music and um i don't know was it someone's house or after show party or something and I remember somebody offered me a second or third drink or something, and she said, "You and I remember clearly, she said, "You better watch out, I'll take you off my star list."
1: Fantastic.
2: I
0: know <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm going to use that. Um... <laughs> So, the great Betty Pounder. Um, uh, Another uh, great who is no longer with us is Richard Weirich. Oh, yes. Of course. Who um, cast you in a lot of shows, didn't he? He
2: did. He was very kind to me. And uh, I met him years before when I was working at the then Nimrod Theatre, which is now Belvoir Street, of course, on that site. And he and um, John Bell and Ken. Haller. Haller, thank you, uh, ran the Nimrod Theatre um, and I had done a couple of shows there. I'd done um, a, a play called Ashes by David Rudkin that Ken directed and then I did Jumpers, which Ken directed. But before that, I did the very first late-night show in a theatre in Sydney in 1977, I think, maybe it was 78... And it was called Geraldine Turner Sings. I wanted my name in the title. (laughs) (laughs) And it was a show loosely based on love, I guess, the different sorts of love, you know, obsessive love, you know, romantic love, blah-de-blah-de-blah. And that's the show that I took to New York to do a cabaret season in New York. Anyway, we used to play late nights at weekends with that. And then I did these two shows. And so I knew Richard, but I'd never worked with him as a director. And and when um, I had the idea to do Chicago, you know, Uh, ever ambitious girl that I was so I took the idea to him that I want to play Vilma Kelly and he applied for the rights and didn't get them and then the year after that he was appointed the artistic director of the Sydney Theatre Company when it first started so because before that we had the old tote if you remember and then that kind of fell in a heap anyway um, so the Sydney Theatre Company started in 1980 and I was put in the first company so You know, there was a company of actors that went from show to show, you know, a bit like the Quizás Theatre Company days. And um, we opened with a terrible old hoary piece called The Sunny South, um, which had a wonderful part for John Hargraves in it. Anyway, darling John Hargraves. Anyway, um, all of us were in it, you know, the usual suspects. Um, After that, because I wasn't too happy being in the company of of it of the Sydney Theatre Company but we did do that year in 1980 we did I'm Getting My Act Together and Taking It On The Road which Nancy Hayes starred in and I was one of the I guess supporting players I had a couple of solos and it was a great great show to do Linda Nagel was in it Vince Martin who else I think George Bartels was in it anyway who later went on to play Amos Amos yeah Yeah. so he applied Richard had applied for the rights again in 1980 for 1981 and got them Of Chicago, so then he, of course, put Nancy and myself in it, and um, you know the rest is history. In a way, I mean, I I, it people who weren't around then who only know the show, the Chicago that goes around the world and has for about twenty years now, fifteen years. The
1: Walter Bobby production.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's really like a concert version in a Mm. way Mm. that is made kind of funky and groovy, and that's what people know as Chicago if they're younger folk. But in fact. Chicago originally was called Chicago, a musical vaudeville and it had a lot of vaudeville aspects to it Uh, and that's the show that we did and it was the first time was again a watershed moment in Australian theatre because up until that time we producers for major musicals had brought in, had bought an American production and you did the American production and the American choreography, American sets, American costumes, da-da-da-da-da, that's what happened. We did our own version of Chicago. So we had Ross Coleman's brilliant choreography. Um, Roger Kirk. Roger Kirk did the costumes, and they were really creative costumes. Um, um, Brian Thompson did the set, which was fantastic, um, and Richard Werrett directed it. And it was wonderful. And we, we, we knew we had something really good going, but we didn't quite know as you never do, because um, you're, you're immersed in the production. You don't know if it's working, really. You're just working really hard. But um, the first, I remember we did a gypsy run and um, invited a whole lot of theatre theatre people and to the final dress rehearsal before the opening and at the end of the tech week. And we went on, and I think Richard Werrett writes about this in his biography, but um, we went on, and as you know, the show opens with all that jazz, which was fantastic choreography by Ross, just wonderful. And if I do say so myself, I could sing the shit out of that song. So I did and we did the choreography and, you know, and at the end of the number, the audience stood up and went wild. I've never seen anything like it. Okay, they were theatrical people, you know, must, you know, say that. But I remember walking off stage thinking, phew, we've got a hit, you know. But it was quite an extraordinary thing and, uh, yeah, it it was great. And we played... To standing room at the Drama Theatre for a number of weeks before we transferred to the Theatre Royal, and then we ended up playing the show for two years. Um,
1: and the first of those Sydney Theatre Company shows to tour internationally, you went to Asia too. Yeah, didn't we, we went to
2: Hong Kong, the Hong Kong Arts Festival. Yeah, yeah, and that was funny too because we did it for about a year and I don't know, a year and a half in Sydney. Played. We did three seasons in Sydney. We just kept coming back and selling out completely all the time. I think we played Adelaide and. Melbourne, maybe we played Brisbane. I've forgotten. Anyway, uh, we didn't do so well in Melbourne for some reason. We played the comedy, and yeah, we just didn't. Yeah, we did okay, but we didn't sell out the way we did in Sydney. Anyway, yeah. So then we had, we thought that was the end of it. Then a year later, they got this, you know, thing. Would we go to the Hong Kong Arts Festival and do Chicago? So we got together on a Thursday rehearsals a year later. And Richard said, Richard sat down, we're all there at rehearsal, he said, okay, let's do a run. (laughs) (laughs) It was so funny. And we did. And you know what? We remembered a lot of it. It's only a couple of times in my life. We laughed our way through it, you know, but we remembered a great deal. So it's really weird because I've done that again since when I, because I've done A Little Night Music three times. I've played Desiree twice now. And the Desiree I played... it was ten years apart. Ten years later, I played Desiree again in a, for an opera company in New Zealand. The first time was Sydney Theatre Company.
1: Directed by Richard?
2: Directed by Wayne Harrison. Wayne Harrison, mm. yeah. was his first show at the Sydney Theatre Company. Um, he wanted to do Kiss Me Kate with me and Philip Quast, and Philip didn't want to do it. So then he came up with Night Music and John Waters got Frederick, and, yeah, that was the way that went. But, yeah, I don't know why Philip didn't want to do Kiss Me Kate. Anyway, there you go. Whatever. A missed opportunity. Um... Yeah, so what am I saying? I worked with Philip anyway, and Into the Woods a few years later, ten years apart, Obviously. playing Desiree. So it's just weird when you do something again, ten years later. I remembered so much of it, so much of the dialogue and and all the songs and just the lyrics. Everything. It so it just leads me to believe that. We don't, You know how we always think, oh, you know, we've closed a show and then it's all gone, That the memory of that, and you're on to the next thing? It's somewhere stored. There's a
1: file in there There's somewhere. a file you in you the brain. you just got to find it.
2: Yeah, <laughs> that's right. It's there.
1: And open it up.
2: Yeah.
0: Isn't it rich? Are we a pair? Me here at last on the ground, you and
1: In the um, Richard, of course, steered the SDC to incredible heights.
2: He did. And Isn't Chicago, to this date, is still one of their most successful shows ever. Um, yes, it was a great time in theatre in Sydney and he did some marvellous productions. His production of The Crucible, I think, is one of the best things I've ever seen in my life. And, um, As John, star, John, John Howard. Howard and yeah, was absolutely wonderful. And I just... You know, I, I'm i loath to go to other productions of The Crucible because I think I've seen, seen The Crucible. The definitive. Yeah. yeah, I don't want to see another one. You know, Richard was, had a great talent, you know. he, he, he I guess in a way he, it was big sweeping pictures and things, but he could direct actors as well and I, such an adorable person. I, I just loved him and he gave me a lot of greater opportunities.
1: Yeah. I mean, you talk about Darling John Hargraves. Yeah, yeah. loved him. Who you worked with on film as well.
2: I did, and Kevin might hear you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I loved him so much.
1: So, just just a a a great company member to be around, or a great bloke. Oh, yeah, all the above.
2: Difficult was he? Yeah, difficult and tempestuous and passionate and wonderful. I was in love with him. I thought he was fantastic, Um, and a great, great Australian talent. You know, I don't think there's anyone been like him before or since. He lit up the screen, one of those people, or lit up the stage. Um, Sydney Theatre Company actually did a production of Present Laughter for him, the Noel Coward piece, and we played the Theatre Royal. And the three women, his three women in the show were myself, Wendy um, Hughes, Hughes, and Robin Nevin played the secretary. And uh, yeah, it was a fantastic production, really good. Really good, and he was marvellous in it. You know, you wouldn't think of John Hargraves and Noel Coward in the same sentence, but he was marvellous, really good.
1: Because he seemed to be the quintessential Aussie Australian guy, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: that's right, yeah. Right. No, no, he could do it all right.
1: And a, a gentleman that uh, steered your career a lot uh, was Bill Shanahan.
2: Yes, my darling Bill, who died of AIDS in... Oh, gee, when did he die? In, I'd just done... Night Music, I think. So that was, uh, for Sydney Theatre Company, that was 1991 or 92. I'm not sure that's when he died, yeah. And, uh, yeah, he absolutely did steer my career. And, in fact, I feel, and I'm sure a lot of actors do too, that I think I had a career because of Bill. I mean, I'm not saying my talent wouldn't have got me somewhere, but maybe not. He was just the most brilliant manager and... You know, it was his idea to do Geraldine Turner Sings. And it was his idea to take that show to New York. He came with me to New York. You know, he started Mel Gibson's career. Without Bill, Mel wouldn't have had a career. Same with Judy Davis. You know, those people, those people in films in the early 80s, that was all Bill's creation. Um, and he was a fantastic... I mean, I know that the business has changed now completely, but... He wasn't one of those managers who only thought his own people were great and everybody else was terrible. You know, people would ring him, producers would ring him and say, I'm looking for such and such for this sort of a part. And he'd say, well, look, I don't have anyone, but what about so-and-so? He'd be great in it. And he was with another agent. You know, that just fantastic person. And, you know, again, we'll never see the like again. He was just brilliant. And I, I felt at sea completely when he died. And I'm and in mean, the loss anyway because he was, you know, my best friend. And... um yeah, it was a terrible, terrible thing. It was a terrible time that. Well, we lost, we lost those, so those last mm. three
1: gents, Hargraves and Warehouse oh, and, and Bill, to, to HOV.
2: Terrible.
1: Uh, yeah, we lost a lot of people. Mm, mm. Do you want another cup of tea? No. No? You're all right? I'm fine. All right, good. Um, we're on a roll. We're on a roll. Now, you've been, um, we've, we've talked about a lot of those big commercial musicals that, uh, that you've done. So you've been um, the leading lady. How demanding is it to be the lead both on stage and offstage as a leader to a company That's an interesting to balance question. that. Yeah. yeah, I think that because it is a great responsibility. It isn't is
2: it? actually, yeah. And there have been times in my life when I haven't come up to the um, the place I should be in in leading the company. I've always led the company, but you know, I've been a brat sometimes too, and you know, oh, as far my as private lead- leading life by
1: example. Or, yeah,
2: my yes. private life has taken over, and I've been you know quite mad, but but at times. But still, a,
1: a mature, is that earlier in your career? Though? I That's suppose so. I'm certainly thing, not I? that now. I'm not that person <laughs> now.
2: But, um, yeah, um, I think I've always had that ability to lead a company and I don't even know what that is, what the definition of that is. But I think I do have that. And I, I'm very much aware. I'm very inclusive and want everyone in the cast to be great and I'm not one of those people who... I'm the leading person and I don't care about anyone else, and I'm not giving you a moment. You know, I can't stand those sorts of performers. Um, I'm not of that ilk at all. Um, so, yeah, I, I've always been really inclusive. Um, yeah, I mean, sometimes it's harder than others. You know, when I've been writing the notes for this CD, we've included on it a couple of um, things from I'm so pleased from uh, the Melbourne Theatre Company production of um, Sweeney Todd, which I played Peter, uh, I played. Mrs Lovett and Peter Carroll played Sweeney Todd and when we played Melbourne um, at the Playhouse at the Arts Centre we didn't have mics can you imagine doing Sweeney Todd without mics it was like fighting a war every night and by the time we got to Sydney to Her Majesty's and then we went to Brisbane um, it was taken over by Wilton Morley Uh, he produced it so I think Philip Emanuel probably did too because they always did shows together Um, and we had mics and I was like Oh my god! I can now just kind of not, not relax, but
1: but find that detail in find the that detail. Yeah.
2: But what is astonishing to me, and you'll hear it when the album comes out, is this is this is again just someone in the audience, you know, illegally downloading or whatever you do. You didn't download in those days. You had, you had a tape player. You had a real, <laughs> real tape player. But anyway, um, but what is astonishing to me, and this is blowing my own bugle for a second, but allow me to. Um, Is just how many jokes I managed to land whilst playing the role and singing. And I'm really pleased about that. And I think, you know, to date, I think it's one of my finest outings on the stage. Not while I'm around. I think I was very good in it. So there.
0: Nothing's gonna harm you, no sir, not while I'm around. Demons are prowling everywhere nowadays send them howling i don't care i got waves. no one's gonna hurt.
1: how do you um feel about no terms care. such as diva star leading light doyenne theatre royalty legend are they band- Oh i
2: lab it up are they, <laughs> <No>.
1: <laughs> well are they bandied around too much yes, or exactly. or do they need to be and of course they need to be earned surely
2: yeah yeah they're bandied around too much particularly on shows like you know, Australia's got talent, or whatever those shows are. Australian Idol. You know, people after one appearance by some fifteen-year-old, the judges will say, "Oh, what a star!" You know, "What an icon you're going to be." Well, no, you're good tonight on television, and if you go on for a number of years, you may become a star. You have the potential for that. You know, so yeah, yeah, I think we, we just pull out those terms, and you know, I, and I think legends are dead. You know. If somebody calls you a legend, yeah. you know, it's stupid. Yeah. You're only a legend when you're dead. Yeah. Don Bradman's a legend. He is. He is. <laughs> <laughs>
1: He's on the application to be an Australian citizen. Um, <laughs> um, now, the work of Stephen Sondheim has yeah. often presented itself to you during your career it with I- iconic... Performances in, in Company and Into the Wards, Side by Side by Sondheim, Winnie Todd, and, as you've told us, three productions of Little Night Music. What is it about his work and women that engages you as a performer?
2: That's a tough question. Um, Which well, is... of course he's enga- it engages you as a performer because he's so brilliant, his lyrics particularly, and the way he sits them on the musical phrase. Um... He, he's very, um, it's, a, it's almost, I always say, it's almost as if he stands to the sidelines of life and comments on life, comments on certain sorts of people, certain sorts of relationships, certain parts of history. He's not in the middle of the song with you. He's to the side of the song. It's up to you to play the song in your way. And you have to go, you know, with the tempo he's written and with the lyrics he's written and you've got to land the gags or whatever. But he's done it all for you, really. You just got to follow the punctuation marks. I think he writes great roles for women, and um, and I've certainly played a lot of them. And and my my first Sondheim album, I've done two Sondheim albums, Volume One and Volume Two, Stephen Sondheim Songbook. The first one used to be was brought out on vinyl, and it was called mm, it was called Old Friends. Geraldine Turner sings the songs of Stephen Sondheim, and. Then years later, we brought it out on CD but and added a couple of tracks to it. But And then later, 10 years later again, we did volume two. But that first little album, we had no idea at the time, but it turned out to be I was the first person in the world to ever record a Sontime album.
1: How did that come about? Was that your idea?
2: Bill Shanahan's idea. Great. Of course. Yeah. Um, that's what I mean. I wouldn't have had a career without him. He said, why don't you do a Sondheim album? You know, so... Michael Tayak was the MD, and we had, you know, an orchestra. And back in the day, God, you had budgets. And I think the ABC might have had something to do with it. Because we did it at the same time that I did an album called Torch Songs, which was a television special as well, at the Regent Hotel down in the Quay, which doesn't exist anymore. Isn't it The Four Seasons now? Yep. Uh, well, they used to have a supper club there. And um, the, the, tel- it, the ABC did a live broadcast of me in the supper club, and then it was released on our, on CD, Called torch songs, and I think I don't know how they worked the budgets, but I think yeah, I don't know. I think that we did two albums of them. Maybe Bill put some money into it. I think he probably did. Um, anyway, that's what happened, and I had no idea that that we were the first people in the world to do an all-sondheim album, one solo performer, closely followed by Cleo Lane and Julie Wilson, and then after that. I think Streisand brought out an album, which wasn't all Sondheim, but it was a no. lot of Sondheim yeah. with some the other Broadway people. Or, the Broadway album? The Broadway album. And I suddenly found myself on the cover of an American magazine with Stephen Sondheim sitting in the centre and pictures of Julie Wilson, Cleo Lane, Barbara Streisand and me around him, and it was Sondheim's ladies on the cover of this magazine. I thought, oh, my God. Anyway, so, yeah, so that's caused, because that album... Came out and it went, you know, went to. It did well in Britain and in USA. And when I say well, well in that genre, yeah. you know, not, you know, so Steve, like a pop album. Did
1: Steve pass comment? Did you? He liked yeah. that
2: album very much. He didn't like the second one, right? And there's a lot of correspondence. Which, if I ever write an autobiography, I will.
1: You'll have that to reference. I'll have that to reference. Yes, yeah. we
2: had to agree to disagree in the end because Steve loves writing letters, particularly, yes. you know, handwritten letters, you know. In one of them he said, because his beef with the second album was that we changed a lot of the harmonies in the arrangements and he hated that.
1: He's a stickler for that. Oh, yeah,
2: yeah, like yeah. Richard Rogers yeah. was, you know. He wants his harmonies, his arrangements of everything. And I kept writing back saying, but if I do that, why would anyone buy the album? Because yes. I've got to put my stamp on it because... He kept writing back saying, Geraldine, your stamp is your voice. You know, so there was no winning with him. You know, he just wanted the original arrangement... Nothing else, and sometimes we put two songs together. You know that sort of they thing. He hated that. Hated oh. that. Oh, hated all of that. Yeah, yeah. And yet, remember, it's done you know.
1: all the time now.
2: I know all the time. yeah, yeah. since then, thank, I suppose he's got older and he's given in. But I, I remember one of the, one of the letters he said, "Barbara strives and respects me, Geraldine. Why can't you?" <laughs> 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 I didn't know whether to be flattered or
0: <laughs> angry or. <laughs> What can you lose Only the blues Why keep concealing Everything you're feeling Say it to him What can you lose
1: you talked about Sweeney Todd before. Um, I saw that production down at did you? Melbourne Theatre Company oh, right. and it was stunning, stunning. It was like a
2: chamber it, it, version.
1: Yeah. Well, it was the first chance that we'd had to see a production of it since the televised Broadway production yeah, yeah. with Angela Lansbury yeah, and George yeah. Hearn. And the thing that struck me about your production was the incredible sexuality that yeah. existed well, with Mrs Lovett. She I was, was quite young
2: when I played her. Yeah. I think I was 37 or something. And now, of course, since they did that film with Johnny Depp and... Eleanor Bonham Carter. Yes. Everyone's young now who plays... But in those days, you were kind of 50 or over if you played Mrs. Lovett. Well, I was quite young, and so I talked to Roger Hodgman, the director, and we talked a lot about the fact that we could make it much more sexual that, because the plays of The show's about obsession. He's obsessed with his dead wife, with killing people to re- avenge her and all that sort of stuff. Everyone's obsessed, you know. Um, Toby's obsessed to a certain extent. Anthony's obsessed with... Joanna, you know it's all about obsession, so I think that her obsession in our production was him, yeah, and so a little priest which closes act one, I think and you hear this on the it's on this little recording we're releasing. you all want to rush out and buy it now, don't you? <laughs> um, it, it it's evident that during the song, although we're landing the gags and doing on talking about people, people putting people into pars and everything. It's also like, um, like where, oh, what's the word when you pre, you know, coital or whatever, uh, yes, what, um, whatever foreplay. It, foreplay, thank you. Yes. That's what I'm thinking of. <laughs> thank you very much. It's like we're doing foreplay. Absolutely. And then at the end of that song, we go into this huge passionate kiss, yeah. kiss, as if the whole idea of killing people has turned us on, you know. Yeah, yeah. And then by act two. It's clear to the audience that he's lost interest in her. So by the time we get to this is in our production, so that by the time we got to by the sea, she's just like insanely wanting him to fuck her, you yeah, know. Yeah. But he's, if they going, he's going, he's going, he's <laughs> going, yeah, mm, yeah, right, you know. So that's what the 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 whole theme of the of the show was, and I think it worked really well. And I think um, that it was very different from that Broadway reading, which I think is relevant and interesting and yep. all of those things and I don't think I was in any way a copy of um, Angela Lansbury's marvellous performance. Yeah. But but I don't think I was in any way a copy of that. Oh no anymore. you made it your own. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's you know, you have to, don't you?
1: Um Little Night Music. Yes. Three productions, Petra, Desiree. One day would you like to play Madame Armfeld?
2: I'd love it. It's a leading role, you know.
1: Yeah.
2: Um yeah, I'd love to. I think I'm a bit young yet. Yes. You well, know, still a but oh you know I'm Old as the fucking hills, but I mean, I'm not old quite enough to play Madame Amfort, but I'd love to. Yeah, I think I'd be the only person in the world to have played Petra, Desiree, and Madame Armfield. I
1: know. That's, yeah, that's, that'd be that'd interesting, be wouldn't yeah. it? You know,
2: have to get Steve to come out and look at it Absolutely. wherever it happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's such a perfect musical, isn't it? It's
1: it's glorious.
2: Oh, it's just fantastic because I was think that, a it? lot of his shows, act twos, are a bit of a mess. You know, like when you think of Into the Woods, the middle of Act 2, it kind of goes off on a tangent. You think, what is this? Then it comes back, you know, and I think a lot of his shows are like that is Act 1's a perfection. I mean, Sunday in the Park with George, you know, and then mm. Act 2's a bit weird. Yeah. But it kind of gets tied together at the end of mm. Act 2 and you like it again.
1: Leaving Into the Woods.
2: Into the Woods, so, yeah, same thing. Now yeah, you're involved it's with a that,
1: that infamous production. Well, inf- uh, notorious yeah. production at the STC, notorious, yes, which, yeah. Which you do talk about in Turner's Turn. I
2: do. Well, I do. Well, yeah, um, I haven't for a while in Turner's Turn, but yes, I, I, I have talked about that. No when questions. you saw the show, I did. Um, yeah, it was.
1: It was a good show, wasn't it? It was a good, good show. And it was a stellar but, cast. But it would the backstage antics would well, be the fodder of a great theatrical. Yeah, yeah. I wish I'd kept a diary. I wish yeah. I'd
2: kept a diary. Yeah, and I had my a big falling out with Wayne Harrison during that um, tech week because I was on the board of the Sydney Theatre Company as well at the time and, you know, Sydney Theatre Company always has an actor on the board and I was the actor on the board for a number of years and what happened was that the set was so difficult that instead of the tech going for five days as it should have or something. We ended up teching for about two and a half weeks, so we put back the opening three weeks and lost a lot of money for the company, so I was in an impossible position. Mind you, I take responsibility for screaming at him from the stage and going to my dressing room and slamming the door. I should not have done that, and I'm not proud of it. But, um, look, you know, he would have his side of it, and you know, again, I feel no animosity, no, you know, um, it just happened, just one of those things. But it was the end of a very difficult week, because well, it started weirdly. So, so we have people like Philip Quast playing the prince and, and, the, and the, the wolf. Um, DJ Foster played the other prince, Rapunzel's prince. Um, we had Judy Canelli playing the witch. We had... Um, I was playing the baker's wife. Tony Sheldon was playing the baker. Um, Pippa Grandison was playing Cinderella. Sharon Millerchip was playing um, Red Riding Hood. Uh, so it was, you know, it was a stellar cast. And the, the problem started on day one, well, I think the problem started day one, when Wayne um, said that he wanted the opening scene to be in a New York apartment with someone sitting at a piano. He didn't ever say it was Steve Sondheim, but I think it was supposed to be that. And playing music and we're all around the piano as the characters and we come out of his mind kind of thing. Okay, you know. Whatever, that's okay. Yeah, it's director's prerogative. Um, but usually the show opens with the three things, dum, 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 and the three, peop- the three lots of people are there, Cinderella and um, the baker and the baker's wife in the centre and um, Jack and Jack's mother, those three sequences. and that. So from the beginning, the lights are up and you're into the story. Well, this was a different thing again. And I think he, he wanted, as the lights went out, which did happen, I think, did end up happening, sort of phone calls and phone messages saying, no, he's all right, I'm going to the hospital, because it was Wayne's idea that was written during the AIDS crisis and the show was all about AIDS. And, yeah. So, look, I remember Philip Quast just losing it and saying, you know, well, I was hard to do into the woods, not this. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, things kind of got very kind of gritty. Anyway, that all went away and we started doing our best in rehearsals as you do and you then have to, you know, you're a mere actor, you have to do what the director wants and so that's, you know, that's what we did. And then by the time we got to the theatre, the, the, the set was a double revolve which changed height. So one circle inside another circle which changed levels all the time and a lot of the entrances people had to crawl under the set and come up the middle well, if you crawled at the wrong moment, you'd be cut in half by the sets inter- intersecting, and nobody had thought to question
1: health and safety. Health or, and safety, yeah.
2: yeah. Nobody had thought to maybe put someone under the set all the time with a button uh, that says yes, you can come now, no, you can't. That you know, and, and to stop the whole thing if something went wrong. Da 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 da. So there was much toing and froing and going on, and. One of the actors, who should remain nameless, left the, the tech, what ended up being the tech two weeks, um, left for three days and went off on a blind, I think. Um, two of the actors had a punch up in the drama theatre, um, outside the drama theatre dressing room. It was very tense. Yes. I had that argument, famous argument with Wayne, um, which was bad. Um People were just not knowing what to do, and then Judy Canelli, um, God lover, said that um, she had seen the ghost of Benelong under the revolve, <laughs> 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 and that Benelong didn't want us to do into the woods at the Sydney Opera House. Right. So that's why we're having all these problems. The yes, because Philip had at one stage, Philip Kost's leg had gone down in between the two circles, and he'd cut his leg. You know that and they had to stop the revolve, and like, you know as you would. Or his leg would have been cut off. Um, so that all this sort of stuff was happening, you know. It was terrible. And um, I think, you know, Judy brought in a some sort of, you know, healer, faith healer person, and they all stood around held hands and blessed the set or something. I went, mean, oh, God, Father. Anyway, I didn't go to that. I stayed Such in my dressing room.
1: But sounds like you might need an exorcist.
2: We might have, yeah. yeah it's but, it's look, having nice. said all of that, we opened played the standing room we played something like 16 weeks or even longer I'm not sure and uh, you know audiences absolutely adored it and loved the production et cetera. Et cetera. the other thing that I, I I was remembering when I was writing the notes for this um, thing uh, CDs um, is that we had Wayne wanted us to have Australian accents which I think it just sounds a bit weird um, we did it again're we actors do what the director says yep. but and it's you know valid, I guess, but it's written in the American idiom. It, it's it's written in that sort of almost Jewish American idiom that lands a joke a certain way, and you have to have that kind of accent. Yep. So with an Australian accent, it doesn't work as well. Yeah. Anyway,
1: that's tough fit.
2: Yeah, whatever. Mm. Yeah.
1: So you are on the, the, the board of the SEC at the time, mm. you were saying. You've also served as um, National President of Actors' Equity. Yes, I have. Um, and you ran for a seat in the Southern Highlands <laughs> at one point. council. Would you, have, li- would you, would you yeah. have liked a career in politics? Oh, I don't know.
2: Um, I still flirt with the idea. Because I think I'm a, when I ran for council in the Southern Highlands, which is years ago now, when we've, sort of when we first moved there, Uh, And I would have done it had I won, and I almost won, but I didn't. Um, I ran as an independent. I just didn't have um, all my ducks in a line, you know. I I, I would know now what to do in order to get more votes, but um, I got a lot of votes. But I had to go out during that time and make a lot of speeches, and I found I was good at it. I found I could hit the mark and I could answer questions from the community and I'm not frightened of that. I'm quite good at it. So I think in that way, I would make a good politician. I think I would make a very bad politician in what we talked about right at the beginning of this, this interview when I was talking about the fact that I'm fearful. You know, I wouldn't like the bad reviews every day. You know, it's bad enough getting a bad review now and again for a theatrical thing you're doing. But all the press saying you're terrible all the time, I don't think I could cope with that. No. I think I'd sort of go under.
1: Yeah, but maybe you get
2: used to it. Maybe you.
1: Well, you learn spin, don't you? Maybe you do.
2: Maybe you do. (laughs) Anyway, yes. Part of me would like, in another lifetime, to be a politician. Yeah,
1: Mm, part of me would. Acting seems to be an occupation where longevity and experience count for nothing. You know, it doesn't necessarily guarantee a promotion of any sort or ongoing work, etc. And and cast. That's for some people. Some people, I said, they build some sort of. uh, hook into the star system. Some people seem
2: to be untouchable, don't they? They go through their whole lives and they've never had a bad review and they've never... People just like them because they don't... They're not outspoken like someone like me. You know, because someone like me, I'm sort of divisive in a way, aren't I? I mean, you either... Because I say what I feel and say what I think, people either like that or they hate that. So it makes people with you or against you whereas people who just sort of shut up and toe the line and say nothing ever don't have any opinion on anything ever and are always lovely in inverted commas except when they're drunk and the truth comes out but i mean you know those sorts of people i think do very well in this country
1: Mm. Mm. um and look a lot of casting it would seem sadly and especially in commercial musicals in australia now is about social following, social media following, oh, you know, yeah. how many likes fans I you have, etc.
2: How many Twitter followers
1: you have. Yeah, or well, all that, that sort of thing. It's uh, just
2: ridiculous, isn't it? Isn't the world... Cool. Aren't we in an amazing world? I mean, don't we live in an amazing time? It's crazy, isn't it, really? Mm. Huh? Mm. I think that's crazy. Talent should come into it somewhere, funnily enough.
1: Um, is it hard ageing as a performer?
2: <laughs> yeah, I think it is very hard. And I think... I don't want to say, oh, poor me. But, I mean, I th- yeah, it h- it's hard. And I, I think it's hard ageing anyway. And I think that it's hard, you know, what did Betty Davis say? Uh, getting old is not for sissies. Yeah. She's absolutely right. I think the way people view you is probably different. Or um, well, you look older for a start. But, yeah, I think it's hard. Yeah. I mean, the only thing you can hope for is that you, you're still well when you're 95 and because everybody else will be dead so you'll get the part (laughs) (laughs) but um yeah I think there are not as many parts the phone doesn't ring as much so that's something you've got to cope with and I that's why I always say to younger actors get get a get a hobby love no but get get something a passion away from show business that you actually love to do, whether it's painting or writing or yeah, I don't know, whatever. For your whatever. mental
1: health. Yeah. For your
2: mental health, but also for the fact that as you get older, you're not that person on everybody's lips. You know, I was that person on everybody's lips, lips in my 20s and 30s and into, into my 40s a little bit, and then the phone stopped ringing. Um, it happened to coincide with Bill Shanahan's death, so I do think that to have that wonderful manager for so many years was a great thing that I had. Um, uh, yeah and and I feel like I've been not struggling but I guess fighting for parts the last 20 years and that's not to say I haven't got some of them and some great ones Hmm. and I've had a career that's ongoing all of the the above and everything's relative you know I'm sure there are people sitting out there thinking oh gee Geraldine Turner she works all the time you know it's not true I don't um I'd like to work more. I had a great year last year, fantastic year. I worked all year, and that was wonderful. Um, This year, no, I don't have much on at all. So hopefully something will happen. Something always does. You Mm. know, you always get some sort of offer. Mm. Um, Next year, I've got some hands in the fire. So, you know, like I, I suppose it's ongoing, and I do have some kind of profile. And that's a good thing.
1: Look, you've recently ventured into the roles of playwright with yeah. uh, works like *Drama Queen* and *The Refuge*. Yeah, that's and right. And also um, directed, take on a directing role with Jacques Brel is *Alive yeah, and, and Well I've, Living*. You in know Paris. what?
2: If I could direct for the rest of my life, direct and write, and never perform, I'd be happy. Yep. I'm not that I'm saying that I want to perform, but yep. I'm just saying I love those two things so much that if that were my future, I would be very happy. I can't imagine that it will be my future because I'm old, and I think that. Well, I'm in my 60s, and I think that people aren't interested in people who are over 50, sadly. Um, So I think that, look, you know, I may direct some things, hopefully. Um, I won't give up on trying, and I'm certainly not going to give up with trying with the writing, uh, because I love it so much.
1: What do you love most about performing?
2: What I love most about performing is uh, let me say it this way when i'm on a film set and i'm doing a film or i'm doing television i which i really enjoy and love trying to get it right and all that sort of stuff there's a part of me that always yearns to be back on stage which to me is the real thing let me say that to open with what i love most about it is that that night is never going to happen again for all time that i create the night with my audience And those people are never going to be sitting together there and there and there again. Those people are never going to be laughing at that joke again. And so it's the spontaneity and the immediacy and the special quality that we're all creating that night that is, you know, too late, you missed it. If you weren't there, you missed it, you know. And it's a bad thing too because then it's not captured on film forever. But it's the great thing about live theatre that you have to go to to get that feeling as an audience member and when you see a great show and have a wonderful night in the theatre that's why you keep going back to get that night again to get that that lift again that, that happiness, that elation that you feel that wonderful place to be alive that you, you're sitting there that night with that group of people and you can't get it every time you go to the theatre it's not going to happen but you keep going back to get it like like a high that a drug addict i suppose wants you know and if you get if you get it once every couple of years that's great.
1: Geraldine Turner O A M. Yes i am. <laughs>
2: Old actress metal i
1: call it. <laughs> Icon not yet legend. No. Um, <laughs> we uh, we wait with bated breath for uh, your autobiography but not thank for a you. while yet. Um, no. it's been an absolute delight thank you for chatting Oh today thanks on, Peter uh, i've loved it. <laughs> I'd like to thank Desiree Records for the use of all music in today's podcast. The music is featured in Geraldine's new 3 CD release from the Great Australian Voices series. If you'd like to find out where you can get a copy, please check out the Stages Facebook page.
0: A to Z, three cheers and damn it, say vie. I got through all of last year.